You're listening to episode 401 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. Wow, we're starting our way to episode 500. What a, what a <laughs> yeah, concept. Yeah. We're only about two years away from that, right? Well, yeah. But <laughs> Marching forward. weeks a year, yeah. Uh, well, it depends. If you go on vacation, it may be more like three or four years. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We've got lots of stories tonight. A new military tactical UAS, detect and avoid system deployment at a UAS test site, a major, major army test of a drone swarm, the White House requests for malicious drone legislation, the NTSB wants more drones and pilots, a new vertiport opens in England, DJI suspends business in Russia and Ukraine, and the upcoming Drone Safety Day. So I think we should get started. We got a lot of stories to cover. Well, our first story is Meet Phoenix Ghost, the U.S. Air Force new drone project perfect for Ukraine's war with Russia. The Phoenix Ghost is a tactical UAS, kind of like the switchblade we talked about last week, um, designed by the Air Force and manufactured by AVX Aerospace. It's just been revealed. Um, it's been classified up till now. And even now, the Pentagon really isn't saying very much about what this is, I guess. I think they're keeping it quiet. It's part of the Air Force's rapid prototype program, which they've turned us around um, prototyping basically by a private company and keeping their hands out of it to get the product out into the combat space, in fact. Um, and we are shipping them to Ukraine. They are saying that the training required for Ukrainian operators would be minimal for those who were already familiar with the switchblade or maybe some other unmanned aircraft. Of course, that's a you know a key part of providing arms to the Ukrainian uh, military forces is that you know they can uh, learn to operate them quickly. And there, I mean, the Ukrainian military forces have also been training with the U.S. military before this conflict. There's a mutual understanding there. And this rapid prototyping came into play where they could implement it fairly quickly and, and set, ship them overseas. And they're going to be used with little training. So it's a very interesting aspect of modern warfare is basically get a new weapon system out considering when we talk about Air Force normally, we're talking about weapon systems design that takes two or three years at minimum to get a prototype, let known another 10 or 20 to seems to get out into the um, sphere of the combat, etc. So uh, hopefully it will be helpful to the Ukrainian forces, but definitely interesting that the Air Force has gotten to the point where they can do this rapid prototyping, which they've been trying to get out of the habit of building programs like the F-35 or the new tanker program that will take forever and are hardly successful. You know, David, I think this is now maybe two episodes in a row where we've mentioned the Russian aggression in Ukraine. In Ukraine. Um, I'm going to have to check our stats just to see if uh, we've been banned in Russia for calling it a war. I don't know. They might shut us off. You never know, but... Um I won't speak for uh, my co-host, but, you know, the Ukrainians don't deserve this. And, you know, they're 
they're doing they're fighting the honorable fight and we need to do everything we can to help them succeed against this aggression i mean and that's simply what it is is aggression agreed so next story new air partners with cal analytics in the faa and this is from uas magazine under a technical assistance program with the faa cal analytics will deploy their detect and avoid system for low altitude bv loss operations in the new york uas test site Boy, um, new air in the New York test site seems to be getting lots and lots of work, or at least they've got really good PR showing that there's lots and lots of work. Yeah, well, it's a good bunch there. And, of course, uh, new air uh, stands for the Northeast UAS Airspace Integration Research Alliance. And, uh, among other things, they manage the drone corridor. It's a 50-mile drone corridor. And they also manage, of course, the um, the FAA UAS test site at Griffiths International Airport in New York. And this Cal Detect and Avoid service, it's kind of a full-featured suite of UTM services. So it includes things like situational awareness, conflict detection, health monitoring, and various weather services. So it's, um, you know, it's a pretty comprehensive platform, I guess you could call it. The recent BV Loss Aviation Rulemaking Committee recommended that the FAA develop a methodology, methodology for approving safety-critical UTM for BV Loss. So New Allen, Cal, and the FAA are working that. So, I mean... It's been a long time, Max. You know, remember when? Remember when test sites were just new and exciting, and now they just seem to be doing their work quietly in the background. And the FAA is listening and learning, but we still need them to work a little faster. At least the FAA. <laughs> One could hope. So, the Army is going to test the biggest interactive drone swarm ever over Utah. So the Army is going to have Edge 22, which is the Experimental Demonstration Gateway Exercise, otherwise known um, as Dugway Proving Ground. Um, And if you don't know about Dugway, Dugway is possibly Area 52. Is that right? If you you watch enough episodes of Ancient Aliens, you'll find (laughs) out that Dugway is... Dugway might be the where, where they moved all the aliens from Area 51 when Air, Area 51 became too exciting. But besides that, the Army's going to test some drone swarms, and a very large one at that. Yeah, this is a, a swarm of up to 30 small networked drones. They're going to launch them from both air and ground vehicles. And then in this test, the swarm um, will um, identify enemy positions behind enemy lines. Um, I guess it's a big simulation kind of an exercise. They're going to use uh, a couple of different drones, the Area 1 Altius 600 drone as well as the Coyote drone built by Raytheon. If you don't know, Dugway is a huge proving ground for the United States Army for weapons testing. This is kind of like the Army's version of the Nellis testing range. So... Um, so if you can imagine, the swarm will use infrared sensors and electronic warfare payloads to detect enemy signals, establish their positions, and send information back through the network to command posts and manned assault aircraft. So basically, these drone swarms are going to report to 
things like Apaches to take out the targets. So the article says they weren't they weren't going to do any sort of aggression, you know, or attacking the enemy forces themselves, but basically being a communications relay to um, other attack aircraft. Boy, you know, I think large swarms of small drones are in large part, you know, what we're going to see in the future in, uh, you know, military operations and, and conflicts and all. I mean, I think there'll still be a role for you know, the larger kinds of drones that we've seen used in conflicts now. But, um, you know, developing the, the, you know, the control software to manage uh, these, these swarms, that sounds like something that would be very difficult to defend against. Yes, and, and the other part about it is with one aircraft, you lose the aircraft, you lose the, the information. With the swarm, you lose one aircraft, the other aircraft fill in that hole, you know. So kind of scary science fiction-y that we're getting to these kind of things, but it, it's definitely interesting. So, Max, we had a quote from uh, Major General Walter Rugen of the Army Future Vertical Lift Cross-Functional Team. If you know about that, that's they're building the new helicopters. Well, I like this quote because it's I don't know it it just sounds kind of homey and and uh, it sounds army. <laughs> so he says uh, we'll be launching them pretty much you know monster garage style, any way we can. We can launch it from the air. We can launch it from the ground. We can launch from fixed wing, rotary wing, any type of ground vehicle. Yeah, I can just imagine you know, here here comes the army. Land, air, and sea. The next thing you know, you're, uh, you know, encased in a in a swarm of drones. And different drones would probably have different, you know. What's interesting is it's not only a network of one type of drones, but it's a network of multiple drones. So the one set of drones might have a mission sensitivity towards radar or whatever, whereas... So you're making a, you're making a battlefield node, and that kind of cross informational will help everybody and be able to you know it's funny, Max. All the years that the army couldn't talk to the air force, and the air force couldn't talk to the navy, and the marines were all completely isolated. Now we've got drones talking to each other and communicating to everybody from the White House down to a guy with a backpack on the front line. So it's. Definitely, communication has become the tool for modern warfare. And this Edge 22 exercise, it's actually um, operating right now. started April 25th, and it runs through May 12th, 2022. And again, it's at the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah near Salt Lake City. The next story was, I don't know, a bit of surprise for me. I didn't know it was coming up, and... This was from Fortune.com. The White House wants to counter the use of drones to the U.S. Biden administration wants drone regulations due to security drones for malicious activity. So what's a domestic counter unmanned aircraft systems national action plan? So this is the plan that the uh, White House has put forward. And we'll have a link to the fact sheet, which summarizes this in the show notes. But the White, uh, the White House wants Congress to, quote, adopt legislation to close critical gaps in existing law and policy that currently impede government and law enforcement from protecting the American people and our vital security interests. 
this action plan, well, it's asking Congress to adopt legislation that would do um, a number of things. And uh, there are actually 10 areas that they talk about. Uh, just to go through them uh, kind of quickly, the, the first is to expand the set of tools and actors who can protect against UAS by reauthorizing and expanding existing counter-UAS authorities. And so that would be with the Departments of Homeland Security, Justice, Defense, State, as well as the CIA and NASA in limited situations, because that's what we've had so far. But they're also proposing that legislation be created that would expand UAS detection authorities beyond those departments to include state, local, territorial, and tribal law enforcement agencies, as well as critical infrastructure owners and operators. That would be a massive, massive expansion that's not allowable at the current time. Well, yeah, and uh, state, local, and territorial, and tribal law enforcement is, that's a big enough step up. But then who gets to decide what critical infrastructure owners and operators are? That's moving this authority to privately owned organizations, you know, like a company that owns a nuclear power plant will have the ability to defend it um, so it, it's interesting. The third one says creates a federally sponsored pilot program. Another pilot program for unmanned aircraft. <laughs> yeah, it just it, I, yeah. I know. I, I, sorry, I, it drives me that one drives me nuts, folks. It's a running joke. Uh, sorry for interrupting. No, that's okay. For selected SLTT law enforcement agent participants to perform UAS mitigation activities and permit critical infrastructure owners and operators to purchase authorized equipment to be used by the appropriate federal SLTT law enforcement agencies to protect their facilities. Oh, there's a mouthful there. Mitigation activities, well, okay, we, that's counter UAS, to purchase authorized equipment to be used by the appropriate federal or SLTT law enforcement agencies to protect their facilities. So who's going to do the authorizing on what equipment is authorized? Yeah, I don't know. We're looking at a summary here, so maybe the actual document, document will have has it. more information. I mean, this is an expansive document, even simply, right? Establishes a list of U.S. government authorized detection equipment approved by the federal security and regulatory agencies to guide and authorized and entitles in purchasing UAS detection systems. That's the answer to the question for above, but how long is it going to take for the U.S. government to come up with an authorized list of detection equipment? Nothing like this comes easy, you know? That's true. That's true. Also proposed is uh, establishing oversight and enablement mechanisms to support critical infrastructure owners and operators in purchasing counter-UAS equipment for use by authorized federal agencies or SLTT law enforcement agencies. We keep saying SLTT. That's an acronym that they have in here. And that's just that's just simp simply the state, local, territorial, and tribal agencies, SLTT. So you'll, you'll see that come up frequently. The next one is the big one. Create a federal UAS incident tracking database. That's going to be... Interesting. What data are they going to be tracking? There's going to be pushback on that one. 
I think they're, um, you know, looking at um, just recording and tracking the number of uh, incidents of rogue drones or malicious drones, where they are, um, just to, you know, understand what's going on. Right now, there's no, I don't believe, central repository for all that kind of information. I mean, the FAA, I think, knows some of it, but other agencies may know, you know, other pieces of the puzzle. And to put it all together, I think you'd want to do that in order to understand comprehensively what's going on. Um, this also talks about uh, coordinating research development, testing, and evaluation. Um, oh, also another interesting one is uh, they propose to uh, enact a comprehensive criminal statute, something that sets clear standards for legal and illegal uses. It also closes loopholes in existing federal law, establishes adequate penalties to deter the most serious UAS-related crimes. And then um, finally, there is uh, a comment to uh, enhance cooperation with the international community on counter-UAS technologies, as well as the systems designed to defeat them, which makes sense. So, David, going from where we were before which is to have only certain agencies that had limited powers to this kind of comprehensive proposal for the actions that need to be taken. And the actions meaning Congress, because this is um, the kind of thing that... Legislation. Right. Legislation would be required. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think I, uh, you know, a number of folks have been working very hard probably for, uh, for some time to put this together. This is a fairly comprehensive document, and... There really isn't any sort of overstep of government. I mean, this is all clarifications of stuff we should already know. Like, you fly a drone over a nuclear power plant, A, you should be able to take that drone out, and B, you should know that you're going to jail for 10 years or something along those lines. We have none of that currently. The only enforcement agency technically, as far as UASs go, currently is the FAA, and they don't have any enforcement abilities. So, and local law enforcement or state law, or law enforcement, they don't know how to handle it. So, I mean, this is definitely a step in the right direction. I'm just wondering, you know, the, the devil is in the details, though. There's a lot going on here, you know, and... It's a major step forward, but it, it's going to take lots of time, and I, there's going to be a lot of backroom dealing that to get even half of this done. I'm interested to uh, to see what kind of support uh, this has in Congress, and whether it's bipartisan or not. You know, just looking at this, and you know, only thinking about it for a day, I, I don't really see anything in here that is highly politically charged or could be highly politically charged? No, but this is Congress. They'll figure out a way of making it politically charged. Uh, it, it, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's very straightforward. These are things we're missing, and these are things that we need to implement. So I, I really don't know where where this could go wrong other than it's going into a political environment and things that aren't political suddenly do become political. And, you know, it doesn't, you wonder where the, what the next steps are. So let's talk about the government buying and using drones. 
Yeah. Which is which was kind of ironic after that story, which is uh, National Transportation Safety Board wants to expand drone operations. And Max and I know the guy that wrote the book on NTSB drone operations. We do. Uh, who has now retired. But the NASB is the history of using drones for in, in their investigations, documenting accident scenes, processing data using photogrammetry software, and currently they have five pilots and seven drones. The program has been so successful, the NTSB wants more pilots and more drones, which I think we should give the NTSB anything they want because they do the, um, the Lord's work when it comes to figuring out what happens when something goes bad. Using drones in this way, it's just another tool in their toolbox, in their investigations toolbox. And it's something that's proven to be beneficial to the NTSB. And it's not, I don't think, something that is hugely expensive relative to, you know, other aspects of carrying out an investigation. So, uh, yeah, I think the... uh, NTSB should get more pilots and more drones. So absolutely. So we're in agreement on that one. So, But it was just kind of ironic that, you know, the next story that I found after the White House story was the government wants to buy more drones. So where do you fly your drones? Or more to the point, where do you land them? The world's first airport for drones opens in the heart of Coventry. Coventry, of course, being England. And this was from the Coventry Telegraph. Dot net. So the Air One Vertiport was opened in Coventry, England. So this is a hub. They're using this to demonstrate eVTOL vehicles. And uh, we, we talked about this previously, uh, about a year ago, I think, we talked about Urban Airport Limited. Um, so they've actually put together one of those proposed at that time, uh, Vertiports. And it's not a permanent location. They're going to leave it in Coventry for at least a month while they demonstrate its capabilities and show it to, to the public and, and others. And then they plan to move the Vertiport to other locations in the U.K. and then even internationally. And if you recall from our conversation a year ago, it's kind of a circular structure, and it has a takeoff and landing zone in the center. But... Uh, inside of this thing, which is not that huge, but it allows for traveler processing. There's an arrival and departure lounge. There's uh, facilities for baggage scanning, and there's even retail space in there. It's it's a, like a mini airport. Airport. Yeah. It's a heliport for vertical aircraft. The primary, an urban airport limited, and we'll have a link to them in their show notes, designs, develops, manufactures, and sells and operates infrastructure for urban air transport, such as air taxis and autonomous delivery drones. The company wants to create the ground infrastructure. Now, we've talked about that a lot, Max, over the last five years. Everybody was talking about the drones, the drones, the drones, and and my civil engineer father in the background was going, but what about where to take them off and landing and all that other stuff? Um, and so that's what they're trying to do. And they're trying to get one that permits a zero emission mobility ecosystem. It's green. It's green. It cuts down on congestion and air pollution. Um, and, you know, they want to be a, uh, have a big role in that. 
urban airport uh, plans uh, more than 200 of these vertiports around the world over the next five years. So, so they're in the stage, I guess you would summarize, David, as saying they've, they've built one um, and they're using it, uh, they, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a mobile roadshow, uh, using it to demonstrate the, what this is all about, the capabilities, and to, uh, I think, probably uh, interest uh, maybe, you know, local governments, whatever, in maybe participating in this uh, in the future as they look to build their 200 worldwide. All right, back to Ukraine and Russia. We talk a lot about DJI being banned or discussed banned here in the United States, but they are self-banning their, banning their products for Russia and Ukraine because they don't like the image of their drones being used in a combat environment. And this comes from uh, CNN and DJI issued a statement a few days ago on April 26th. Uh, we'll have a link to their statement. Actually, their statement is very, is very short. It says, DJI is internally reassessing compliance requirements in various jurisdictions. Pending the current review, DJI will temporarily suspend all business activities in Russia and Ukraine. We are engaging with customers, partners, and other stakeholders regarding the temporary suspension of business operations in the affected territories. So why is this happening? Well, Ukrainian authorities claim that the Russian military was, quote, using DJI products in order to navigate missile attacks and said DJI was complicit in Russian attacks. Well, I mean, if their hardware has been found in Ukraine, so... You know, DJI has publicly stated they are opposed to their products being used for military purposes. But needless to say, we've talked about Russia using Western equipment, especially UASs, because their technology in that field is behind. You know, even even the Russian drones have had uh, Western European and United States technology in them. So, of course, they're going to use whatever whatever they can take. But, you know, it's not a good image for DJI currently. And I'm wondering if this was a self-imposed by the company or did it come from higher up in, in China? Hmm. I kind of assumed that it was a DJI internal decision. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's something they kind of had to do. And uh, I don't know that if it will really make any difference either in the war in Ukraine or, or to DJI, but I think it was a good thing to do. I think it was an appropriate thing to do. It wasn't like they were taking sides. I mean, they did pull out of both people in the conflict. Yep. We'll see what happens, maybe the, if there will be a further statement um, permanently making the problem or it slowly differing, differing away. Well, Saturday, June 18th, Max, is an important day. You and I will be at Dulles at the National Air and Space Museum for um, innovations in flight. But the FAA has decided to create Drone Safety Day. And you can learn, learn about that through a website, which there will be a link in the show notes. So what are the five focus areas of Drone Safety Day? So here's another project somebody got assigned, and they came up with uh, these five focus areas that all begin with an E. The first is education, how to safely operate drones and highlight how drones are being used in education. 
Another focus area is economics, highlighting the economic, societal, and safety benefits of using drone technologies. The third E is equity, opening opportunities for all operators. And we've got two more E's, David. Environment, understanding environmental sustainability benefits of drone technologies, and emergencies. Learn how drones are used in emergency situations such as natural disasters, search and rescue, firefighting, public safety, and other uses. Otherwise, listen to 401 episodes of the UAV Digest, and you'll, you'll hear that also. Well, I think we've touched on all five of those aspects over the years, Max. I hope so. So starting in 2019, the FAA organized National Drone Safety Awareness Week, and they did that annually through last year, 2021. So this year is a little different. This year it's not an awareness week. It's a single drone safety day. As David mentioned, there's a web page. It's actually up on the site of the National Center for Autonomous Technologies. They have a drone safety day page. And you can look at that. Um, they'll have information about all of the drone safety day events. Uh, you can sign up to attend some of them. And you also have an opportunity to submit your own event. So if you're in an organization or a club or a group that uh, uh, has some uh, stake in, uh, in drones and uncrewed aviation, and you'd like to do something for Drone Safety Day, I definitely encourage you to you know, think about it, and then maybe you can contribute to some uh, of these focus areas uh, locally. And Max... Guess who will be participating in that? The American Helicopter Museum and Education Center. Well, that would be appropriate. We are starting a drone program. Really? We actually now own our drones. We have, we have a drone program where you're going to start teaching, teaching how UAS is as, as a STEM program. Um, I'm not sure when our first official day is for that program, but it'll be Saturday classes um, for various ages on learning how to build a drone, how to fly a drone. At the AMH, AHMEC, we are starting to drone on. You know, I, I've rubbed off on them. Yeah, very good. I'm glad to hear that. So let's finish up with a, uh, with a video of the week, David. Uh, do, do not watch this video after eating lunch. <laughs> but this is insane FPV footage of a downhill urban bike racing in Chile. Valapresso Caro Abajo urban downhill bike race is held annually in Chile. The two-kilometer course goes down narrow staircases and alleyways, even through a house. So the Dutch drone gods decided to film this, and it's definitely fast and definitely unique. Yeah, basically you're following this um, this racer Thomas Slavic going through this run. It's not the, it's not the um, you know the competition with lots of bikes, or I don't know how they, they I don't know. I wonder if they do them all at once or if it's um, you know race against the clock. I, I got the impression it was a time try, like like downhill skiing. You get to go through the course once. Yeah, because it's too narrow in some places. But it, yeah, I having seen what happens on the Tour de France, I can't imagine two people on this on this. And when you when you go to the uavdigest.com slash four hundred one to watch this video, you'll understand what Max and I are talking about. These are really really narrow urban streets. 
twisty, turny. You're flying along in a in a drone behind Slavic on his uh, bike, and uh, you know, yeah, try to keep up, and yeah, don't do it after you just after you've eaten. So I guess Max, that'll wrap this up, huh? David, that's it for this episode of the UAV Digest. As always, you can find us at the UAVdigest.com. We have lots of show notes there, lots of links, lots of resources for you there. And we're also on social media, David. We are. You can, of course, find us on our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com. Or you can find us, of course, on Twitter, Facebook, um, just look up UAV Digest. And Max and I are always lurking in the background on our LinkedIn accounts. So if you want to talk to us or maybe have a guest suggestion or something, that's the best way to reach us there. Or you can email us again at feedback at the UAVdigest.com. So with that, I'm going to say this is David in Wilmington. And Max in Hartford. Thanks for listening.